Lord, your word declares that words fitly spoken are like apples of gold in a setting of silver. My prayer this morning, Lord, is that the words that we hear will be fitting, suited to our situation or that of one we know. It is only your Spirit who can take these words and make them alive in our hearts. We know that your word is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, cut, do surgery. And apply the balm of your healing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several months ago, I did a series answering some of your questions. I think some of you still remember that. We're putting out a survey in the church of what kind of questions people had. What kind of questions are people asking? What are some issues that you felt you haven't had answers to that you want answers to? And uh, I got questions, everything from dating to divorce. You remember the very first Sunday morning that we covered our question and answer series. We dealt with an underlying problem within the church labeled loneliness. And as you recall, it wasn't the loneliness necessarily of a single person or the loneliness of the inmate or of the divorcee at the bar, but married people with children going to church every week who felt lonely. And I noticed something that Sunday morning. I had everybody's attention in a dramatic way because they knew it was true. It struck a chord. They recognized that that was a problem either they had or they were knowing someone who did have it. Loneliness is that feeling that although you could be surrounded with all sorts of people, you feel alienated, like nobody really cares um, it eats away at your soul. It even eats away at your body. Researchers have found that certain types of cancer could be stemming from being alienated, loneliness, depression. Uh, it was recorded in a recent survey that 80% of the psych patients that were surveyed, 80% sought help because of loneliness. Because in the midst of a society filled with people, even in large metropolitan cities, they felt extremely isolated. Uh, a few years ago, in a magazine you're probably familiar with, was an article. Psychology Today is the magazine that put it out. And the article was uh, called The Age of Indifference. The author said, I know of no more potent killer than isolation. There is no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than the isolation of you from me and us from them. It has been shown to be a central agent in the etiology of depression, paranoia, schizophrenia, rape, suicide, mass murder, and a variety of disease states. Now, there's a lot of reasons why people feel alienated, why people feel lonely. 
There are social reasons. Our society, folks, breeds that kind of feeling. Uh, number one, we have a very competitive society. We learn to step on one another to reach the top. And because of the fierce competition, that's a social cause that makes people feel alienated, lonely, depressed. The mobility of our society. Every year, 20% of the population in this country moves somewhere else. So there's never really a root system. How well do you know your neighbors, the people on your street? Maybe I should ask, how well would you like to know your neighbors, the people on your street? There are psychological causes, guilt, insecurity. There's spiritual causes, unforgiveness, temptation of the enemy, spiritual warfare. But there's another cause, and that's the cause I want to talk about today, and I believe it is a spiritual cause, and that is choice. People are often lonely because they choose to be lonely. They have made choices, and by their own choices, they alienate themselves from everyone around them. You see, life consists of relationships. And if you could look at relationships as doors, life is made up of doors. Uh, when you come to know Jesus Christ, you have a door, a gateway that's been opened to the Lord, to God. You can know Him. You can learn about Him. You can enjoy His fellowship, experience a relationship. You have a door that's open to your family. You can communicate and exchange love. You have doors that are open to other people. You have doors that are open to the world through evangelism. But through choices, people can close those doors. By their own stubborn will, being obstinate, they can shut the door to God. They can close the door to their brother and sister. They can close the door to their mom and dad. And they can become lonely and alienated. And although they may say, well, it's everyone else's fault, it's really not. It's their fault. Tim Stafford wrote a book called Knowing the Face of God. And there's a couple paragraphs in it that st struck my attention this last week. Let me read it to you. He says, I'm convinced that evangelical Christians have adopted the phrase personal relationship with God because largely it is evangelistically effective. You will not find this phrase in the Bible. And as far as I know, it was not much used by Christians in earlier generations. Yet for us, it has become synonymous with genuine faith. For instance, I have heard evangelical leaders refer to a Roman Catholic Christian by saying, but I'm convinced that he has a real personal relationship with Jesus Christ. By this they mean that he has genuine Christian faith and they accept him as a Christian. Our forefathers were more legal-minded. Concentrating on sin and its forgiveness through the cross, we have switched our emphasis to loneliness and alienation. The reason, I suppose, is that our generation has done what would seem impossible, denied the reality of sin. War, hunger, crime, and other social troubles get blamed on God, government, or abstract forces. 
The choices people make, especially the choices we make, rarely enter into the discussion. Divorce, suicide, depression, and other personal tragedies get blamed on circumstances, diseases, or luck. Nobody is individually responsible. The fault always lies with something or someone else. Though guilty consciences plague our society, people are rarely willing to tolerate someone preaching to them about their sins. So we concentrate instead on loneliness. People don't want to hear that they're sinners, but they don't object to being told that they're lonely. In our mass production society, people crave personal contact. Christians preach that alienation is cured by a personal relationship with God. He fills, as we say, the God-shaped vacuum in man. I do not disagree with this, Stafford says. But because our emphasis on personal relationship has grown mainly from evangelistic experiences without considerable biblical reflection, it leads many people into confusion and disappointment. Now today, I had you turn to this chapter in the Bible because it deals with precisely that. Loneliness, alienation due to stubbornness. This is the type of loneliness, the type of isolation, when it's not everyone else's fault. This is a case when it's not God's fault, it's not the pastor's fault, it's not my ex-wife's fault, it's not my mom and dad's fault because the way they raised me and I'm just a product of my environment. It is a person's choice. A person has made choices, thus he is very lonely, extremely isolated. Now this is called in Luke 15, beginning with verse 11, the parable of the prodigal son. We're familiar with it. Charles Dickens says it was the most beautiful story ever written. It's also been called the parable of the loving father rather than the prodigal son. But today we deal with another issue. That is the parable of the stubborn heart. Because there's not only the prodigal son and there's not only the loving father, but there's another brother who is alienated from his family. Now, to uh, paint the picture without reading the entire chapter, it says in verse 11, let's read a couple verses. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after that, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or wasteful living. We know the story well. The guy splits from home, gets his inheritance, goes out and just parties down. He's a legitimate party animal. Until he has nothing left. He finally wakes up one day when he's eating the pods, the food that is fed to the pigs. He's out tending pigs in abomination, especially for a Jew. He wakes up and goes, what am I doing? This is bananas. I'm going to go back home. My dad loves me. I had security. I had everything. I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask my dad to let me come back home and I'm going to serve him. And sure enough, he goes all the way back home. His father sees him afar off, embraces him. He says, kill the fatted calf. Let's throw a real party, a celebration. My son who is gone is now with us again. The one who is dead is now alive. And they had a celebration. And the whole village is invited. All of the hired hands, all of the neighbors. 
And we pick it up in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Now I want you to notice, keep it in the back of your mind, that this elder brother didn't even know what's going on. He didn't even know that his brother had returned yet. He's coming back from the field, a long, hard day at work. He sees lights on in the cottage up front. He hears music. He sees people dancing. He smells barbecue. The servant says, Your brother has come. And because he has received him, Safe and sound, your father has killed a fatted calf. But, verse 28, he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, You kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost, and now he's found. Here's the picture. Everybody is excited, they're joyful, they're singing songs. The elder brother comes along the scene. He sees everybody enjoying themselves. And while everybody's inside having a good time, he's standing outside, his arms are probably folded, he's got a scowl on his face. Everyone's together enjoying themselves, but not him. He refuses to go in. He's alienated. He's lonely. He's made the choice. He's standing on the outside and he won't do anything about it. Now, I'm sure if we interviewed him and said, you know, you're a stubborn man. You are so prideful. You won't even go in and join the festivities. Your brother, he's come back home. I'm sure he would label it something like, I'm not stubborn, I'm just a man of conviction. I just stand up for what I believe, that's all. But it's simply old-fashioned pride. Stubborn pride that alienates himself from God and everybody else. Now there's a reason that Jesus spoke this parable. Um, He just didn't like to tell stories, so he decided to make one up here. There's a given situation, perfect timing. Jesus brings this story out because of the crowd of people that surrounded him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. All of the tax collectors and the sinners, all the bad folks, drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They were appalled at Jesus' behavior. So he spoke this parable to them. He gives one parable, two parables, and then finally ours, and they all deal with the same issue. The reason Jesus gives this story, this parable about the two sons, is because scribes and Pharisees were watching his ministry and noticed that Jesus would freely associate with sinners. Now, sinners, it was a general term that the religious leaders gave to people 
that were not like them. In other words, if you don't agree with me, you are thus a wicked sinner. Sound familiar? And because Jesus would dare to hang out with these type of people, they accused not the sinner, but Jesus for fellowshipping with them, for being around them and receiving sinners and tax collectors. In fact, the Jewish leaders hated these common people, the people who weren't Orthodox Jews. They hated them so much that they had a saying. The saying was this. Now, it wasn't a saying that they'd pray. It was just simply a saying among them in the inner community. They would say that there is joy in heaven over one sinner whom God obliterates. Now, that's the reason that Jesus says in verse 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now the reason Jesus is giving this story is that he's contrasting two types of sinners. One who is visibly a sinner and one who is invisibly a sinner. It's a contrast. He's not just giving a story about a person who went off into a far country and came back and it's about the backslidden person who comes back and experiences his father's love. That's part of it, but that's not the whole story. The other part of the story is this elder son. The main teaching of this story is a contrast between the younger son, who was a prodigal, who went out and squandered everything that his father gave to him and repented, and the older son, who never supposedly did anything wrong, but in his heart, he still sinned. It's a contrast between two types of people. One shakes his fist at God and says, I want nothing to do with you, God. He's an out-and-out -out sinner. He's got black all over him. You can tell that he's a sinner. You can look at his lifestyle and say, he is a legitimate heathen. He's contrasting that type of person with a person whose heart is filled with sin. It's not visible, it's invisible. Sin's in the heart. And the elder son has a problem that is invisible until he opens his mouth. And then what's in his heart spills out. I want you to notice that the prodigal son represents the sinners, the tax collectors, the people that were running around Jesus and enjoying his company. The prodigal son was indeed prodigal. He was indeed visible in his sin, but he repented. The elder brother is like the scribes and the Pharisees who seem so righteous on the outside as they say, how could you dare associate with such sinners? And they were very good at criticizing other people. They got straight A's in that class. But when it came to judging their own hearts, they flunked. And this is the people that Jesus is speaking about. And I, I think that there is a, a person like the elder brother in a lot of families. I've noticed that for some reason, families have a stick in the mud. They always talk about uncle so-and-so or aunt so-and-so or my brother. And he's the kind who holds a grudge against the family, never will come to family gatherings. Every time you try to reach out to him, he just turns away. We'll never receive love. We'll never give love. There's always that one person who just won't fit in. He just refuses to fit in. That's like the older brother. He won't mesh with the rest of his family. He won't fit in. It's the kind of person that's governed by self-pity. It's the kind of person who says, other people have more than I have. Other people can do things 
better than I can and much more than I can. Now that sounds like low self-esteem, but it's stubborn pride. And we're going to see in just a minute the reasons why. What are some of the signs of a person who is stubborn? The kind of person, not just that's stubborn, because we all have some of that in us, but the kind of person that would alienate himself from God and close the doors to other people. Well, we find those in the verses uh, 25 through 32. There's problems with the elder brother vertically with his relationship with God. And there's problems horizontally dealing with everyone else, all the folks around him. He's got troubles. He's got problems. When it comes to his father, he's ungrateful. I want you to notice uh, verse uh, 27. He said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry. And he would not go in. Notice that. He would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and he said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. Another version says, Look! I've been serving you all these years. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. Do you notice how he is dealing with his dad? There's no respect. He doesn't say father, which was the typical way to address your dad. He goes, look, man. Disrespectful. He wouldn't go in and talk to his father. Wouldn't go in and deal with this issue, he waited outside like this. Hmm. He made his dad come outside to meet him. He wouldn't go inside, which was embarrassing in the Near East to a father. He treats him like he's an employer or something, not his father. He's not treating him. He's ungrateful. It is true that a stubborn person is often a very ungrateful person. Ungrateful, and he doubts the love of God. He doubts the compassion. He doubts the forbearance and the forgiveness of God. He's alienated. This kind of a person is ungrateful for the things he doesn't have. Instead of being grateful for the things he does have. I don't have this. I don't have that. That person does and I don't. And instead of being grateful for the many blessings God has already given him, he complains about what God hasn't given him. He's ungrateful. I want you to notice why the younger son returned to his dad. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? He thought about the generosity of his father. He realized, you know, my dad is so generous that even the servants, even the hired workers, have more than enough to eat. My dad is so generous that even the cowhands have it well. I'm going back. I'm a son. He recognized the generosity of his dad, and that's what drove him home. The elder son was blind to the generosity of his own father. Lo, these many years I have served you. But he wasn't thankful. He wasn't thankful for the inheritance he received. He was complaining and he was ungrateful to his father because of what he did not have. You know, it reminds me of uh, another group of Israelites who were out in the desert for 40 years. 
And at the beginning of their wilderness wanderings, as Moses is on Mount Sinai, the children of Israel start getting itchy. They start complaining. And they think, hey, where's Moses anyway? Hey, why are we out here? Hey, this is the middle of nowhere, man. And they made a gold calf. Do you remember the story? And they worshipped the gold calf. And they said, worship the calf, O Israel. These are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. What began to happen is that Israel began to interpret their own history apart from God and began to interpret their own history without giving glory or thanksgiving to the Lord. Hey, we've done this ourselves. Hey, God didn't bring us out of Egypt. Where's God now, huh? Moses has been hanging around up on a mountain for who knows how long. We're not going anywhere. God's not in this thing. We are. Israel began to become ungrateful, doubting that it was God who brought them out. They were closing the door to the relationship through ingratitude. Because they were stubborn, they closed the door to God's love, to receiving God's love in their own lives. You know, I think that one of the best antidotes against loneliness is thanksgiving. Next time you are all bummed out on your situation and why God hasn't treated you fairly, why don't you make a little list? Why don't you try to think? Now, you might have to think hard, depending on your perspective. But you make a list of how God has blessed you. And you look that over from time to time. In fact, keep it in a notebook. And when you feel alienated and lonely, you begin to thank God. As it says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. And every father enjoys hearing his child thank him. Even if it's for some dumb little thing. Dad, thanks. Yeah, feels good. I like to hear that, son. You're welcome. Every father loves to hear, thank you, Lord. Well, every father, I guess, wouldn't like to hear, thank you, Lord, but he'd like to hear, thank you, at least. The Lord would like to hear, thank you, Lord. Remember the story of the ten lepers? Jesus healed ten of them. How many returned? One. I wonder if the percentage is any higher today. I wonder if ten percent of the people that God blesses return and really thank him and really glorify him. This is a telltale sign of a stubborn heart of a person whose stubbornness has alienated him. He's unthankful to his father, number one. Next, he's discontent with uh, his lot in life. Verse 29, he said, look, I've served you all these years. I've never transgressed your commandments and you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Do you notice an attitude that's going on here? An attitude, something like, hey man, I don't get what I deserve around here. Now here he'd be, been serving his dad all of these years. He's been faithful. In fact, he says, look, I've been faithful all these years. I've never disobeyed. This guy disobeyed. But all of those years of serving his dad were not out of loving service. They were a drudgery. He had to do it. It was just, I have to do it. It's my duty. It's not because he wanted to do it. You know, it's possible to be out laboring in our father's field and not be close to our father's heart. Oh, I'm doing these things because it's the duty. I've got to do it. And all the while, this elder brother has a hidden agenda in his mind and heart. He wants something else. He won't verbalize it, but he expects something he's never verbalized. He says, I am deserving of much more than I'm getting. Someday I want my dad to throw me a big party. And when it doesn't happen, he goes, You never threw me a big party. 
He was discontent with his lot in life. Oh, yes, I've been loving, lovingly, faithfully serving you. No, he hasn't. He did it out of drudgery. He did it because he had to do it, not because he wanted to do it. Oftentimes, stubborn people, those people who are so obstinate and they are unbendable and by their choices close doors, see life as one big drag. And they're not getting what they deserve. And so they complain about their lot in life. And in complaining about their lot in life, they are in effect complaining about God. If they are Christian people who said, Lord, take over my life. All that I have is yours. And God promises to do that. Then when we complain about our lot in life, in effect, we're saying, you blew it. You made a mistake. I'm not happy with this. I had a whole different agenda. You know, we've all heard or read about the upstanding person or Christian in the community who seems to have a good relationship with his wife or she has a good relationship with her husband. And all of a sudden we're blown away when we hear or read that that person split. Out of the blue, left the wife and kids and gone. And we think, now that is so strange. They were so together. No. There was something hidden, a hidden agenda that surfaced. Someone wasn't content with what they were getting, but they never vocalized it. They never learned contentment. They had this hidden thing of, I expect more than I'm getting and I'm going to get it at any cost. And eventually it does surface. Contentment, folks, is something you learn. It doesn't automatically just, boom, come when you become a Christian. You know what Paul said? I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. It just doesn't happen automatically. You learn contentment, just like a person learns discontentment. You know, I'm convinced that we learn to be discontent. It starts when we're a child and we want a toy. And the little girl wants a new doll. And then the new girl, the little girl isn't happy with the new doll. She wants a Cabbage Patch doll. And then the Cabbage Patch doll is passe, so she wants a doll that talks and blinks. And then that's old, and she wants a doll that can clean her room and do her homework. <laughs> but we are conditioned, are we not, to be dissatisfied and to want something better than last year's model? Always a climbing up to get something more than we have. We learn discontentment. We must learn contentment. And I'll tell you, one of the best ways to learn contentment, go find people who have less than you have, whose lot in life is worse and who are not cursing God. It's like the old Arab saying that says, I complain that I had no shoes till I met a man that had no feet. This elder brother complained his relationship with his father was out of balance. His lot in life wasn't all that he wanted. He was ungrateful for the blessings his father had already given him. It's real interesting how we are prone to complain. It's part of human nature. Daniel Webster tells an interesting story of how when he would meet people, and he wanted to give the impression that he knew them and remembered their name. And if he really indeed forgot their name, he had an interesting little way of kind of finding out who they were. And what he would do, and when he'd meet someone, he thought, I know the guy, but I, I can't remember his name. He would say, how is that old complaint we talked about? And he said, nine times out of ten, it worked. The people would begin to speak about some grievance or complaint that they had previously shared with Mr. Webster in a conversation. And it clicked. He goes, oh, I remember this guy. 
Yeah, I remember who this is. And he came up with a name. He said it didn't work all the time, but most of the time it did. Because he found that most people are discontented and complaining. Well, let's move off the vertical relationship and look at his horizontal relationship. Let's look at uh, how he treats um, his brother. It says, let's back up a little bit, uh, verse 25. His older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house, and he heard the music dancing, and the dancing. And so he called to one of the servants and said, ask what these things meant. And he said, your brother has come, because he has received him safe and sound. Your father has killed a fatted calf. You notice that he doesn't even know what's going on around his own family. Hey, what's happening here? What do you mean, what's happening? You're part of the family. You're a brother. Well, I don't know what's going on. Well, remember, your brother split, and now he's back again, and your father is uh, having this big feast. He didn't even know what was going on in his own family. And I want you to notice what he calls his brother. I think you'll find this very familiar. Verse 29. So he answered and he said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat so that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, not, hey, as soon as my brother comes back, it's as soon as this son, he wouldn't even claim that it's his brother. You know, it's sort of like moms and dads who do this. Well, how are you doing, honey? Well, let me tell you what your son did. Until the son does something real nice. And oh, my son is so sweet. <laughs> this guy wouldn't even claim relationship with his brother. When this son of yours comes back, look how you treat him. And you've never treated me that way. Think for a minute. Think of all that this young kid lost. The young brother. He made a mistake, but think of all that he lost in the process. He wanted his inheritance. He wanted all of the money that came with the family uh, property. He takes it. He goes out. He squanders it. He loses it. He loses his friends. He's eating with the pigs, and he's in despair. You'd think that his brother would have a little bit of compassion, right? You'd think that his brother would say, He's home? Oh, praise the Lord. I've been praying for him. This is great. Of course I want to celebrate. But, you know, I sort of think that this older brother was a little bit glad when that young kid split. You know why? As long as that younger brother was out and sinning, it made him look good. But now that he's repentant and back in the family, there's competition. And this is the devastation of stubbornness that alienates. It's a seed that is planted. It closes the door between our relationship with God. We're ungrateful to God. We complain about our lot in life and it trans over into other relationships. That seed begins to take over and our friends, our family become our enemies. They're competition. And so we harden, we stiffen up and we don't let people in or we won't go into other people. Because of that stubborn pride, that heart. And the Lord despises it. Are you holding a grudge against somebody you know? carrying some anger, some animosity? Are you refusing to go talk to that person? Now, I can hear that a few might be saying, well, she blew it. I'm waiting for her to come and apologize. And then, of course, I will forgive. 
Are you helping that door to shut? The two hardest words in the American language are, I'm sorry. So hard for us to say. We can give long dissertations that take an hour, but to say, I'm sorry, forgive me. Oh, it's tough. We have to get psyched up, pray for two hours. And we go, I'm sorry. Glad that's over. Go wash those wounds. Go bury that hatchet. And don't put a marker where you left it. Jesus gave a story. He gave many stories that were beautiful. And on another occasion, when Peter said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And that's pretty good for old Peter. Jesus said, how about 490? He says, let me tell you a story, Peter. There was a man who owed someone a great debt, two million dollars worth. But the guy couldn't pay it off. So the person came to him and he said, you owe me two million bucks. Pay up. If not, man, I'm going to throw you into prison and take you and your family as slaves. And the guy who owed him the money said, please, I'm a family man. Have mercy on me. The guy said, okay, fine. I'll forgive your debt. And so the guy who owed the two million dollars found someone who owed him 20 bucks. Grabbed him by the scuff of the neck and said, pay up, buddy. The guy said, please, I'm a family man. I can't afford to pay you. Will you forgive me? He said, of course not. And through slavery and manipulation, he made the guy pay up. When the landowner and the guy who forgave the two million dollar debt found out about it, he threw the guy into prison. He said, I've been merciful to you. I've forgiven you of a great debt. I buried the hatchet when it came to your sins in your life. Now you better go do the same. That's the message for us. Wash the wounds. Don't let a stubborn heart alienate you from the love of God or from the love of the church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We admit that oftentimes gratefulness is far removed from our lips when it comes to our conversation with you. We do talk about our needs to you. We do intercede. But a heart of thanksgiving is rare. I pray that we would be like that one leper who returned and said, thank you. Cause us to remember your goodness, Lord, in our lives. To be content with where you placed us. To not find ourselves murmuring against the very God who put us in the place that we are. God, I pray that as many of those doors are shut, that we'd go. You've given us the key through love and forgiveness. Through humility to come and unlock those doors and open them up again. Help us to do that in Jesus' name.